0: It's TechBiter Worldwide, formerly Technology Corner, for the week of April 15th, 2007. That's the day before Tax Day here in the U.S. I'm Bill Blynn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. But this time around, a puzzle, a conundrum. Sometimes I say that Linux stands a very good chance of eventually winning the operating systems war. I say that because it's good enough for a lot of people, and it's free. I have usually tempered that statement by saying that some people can't switch to Linux because programs they depend on won't run under Linux, and there are no acceptable alternatives. Example, Microsoft Office. Yeah, OpenOffice is a worthy competitor, but it comes up short in some areas, particularly when it comes to competing with PowerPoint. Then there are applications such as Intuit's Quicken, and yes, you could run an emulator, or you could run Wine, which is an emulator that claims not to be an emulator. But if you're going to run a Windows emulator on Linux, what's the point of running Linux? Linux. And then there's the Adobe Creative Suite applications. Having caught a glimpse of what's coming from Adobe in a couple of weeks, CS3 alone, the Creative Suite version 3, might maintain the viability of Windows and OS X on the Apple platform well into the next decade. Now, I haven't seen the actual product yet. Photoshop, InDesign, Dreamweaver, Fireworks, Flash, Illustrator... Acrobat, After Effects, Contribute, InCopy, and Sound Booth; Those are all part of CS3. But Adobe's advanced materials for reporters show the exciting direction that the package is taking. I remember writing a review of InDesign Creative Suite 2 in June of 2004. After doing that, I sent a copy off to Adobe's PR folks. And a day or two later, I heard from Will Isley, the product manager for InDesign. He asked me to come to Seattle. Said he'd pay my way to come to Seattle. Actually, I was already on the way to Seattle on other business, so I made a side trip when I was there, met with Will Eisley, and met with several members of the development team. That was three years ago, and during that meeting with Will Eisley and perhaps a dozen or so of the programmers working on the project, I talked a bit about Ventura Publisher. I did that because, in the review, I said that I'd finally given up on Ventura Publisher because it was clear that Corel was never going to release another version or even fix the existing bugs. And I included a note in that review. It said, you've already beaten Quark. Now take a look at the features you could borrow from Ventura Publisher. You probably don't give much thought to this also-ran application, but it does have useful features you haven't implemented yet. If you want to blow Quark away, borrow some power user features from Ventura, I can think of no reason why InDesign doesn't allow the user to create a paragraph tag that runs text across multiple columns, for example. It would also be helpful to allow both text and a graphic to occupy the same frame because it's easy to keep text with an associated graphic that way. Well, during that meeting with the Creative Suite development team, they listened very intently and watched carefully. Earlier this month, I downloaded more than a gigabyte of files from Adobe so that I could begin reading about the new features and looking at some of the review guidelines. On the website, you'll see a Firefox Download Manager session that shows the process of downloading some of those 63 files, some of which are zipped files that include half a dozen or more files inside. It's encouraging to see that some of the features that I talked with the development team about are in the program. Now, that doesn't mean that they're the result of my talking to them. In fact, three years ago, they might have already been working on some of these features. The fact that I spoke with them simply gave them a little additional input on how people in the real world might use the program. So I can't say anything more about the CS3 applications. Obviously, I haven't seen them, so anything I would say would be guesswork. But based on what I've seen in the preview press materials, Adobe Creative Suite 3 is going to blow the doors off just about anything else out there. Affordable. You know, that term's a little bit slippery. The first affordable CD burners were around $30,000. The first affordable digital cameras were around $30,000. The first affordable 3D printer... Now wait, if you're seeing a pattern here, you're getting ahead of me. The first affordable 3D printer is about $40,000, so you're probably not going to be buying one of these for your home, but if your business depends on creating prototypes, this might be an affordable addition to your tools. Z-Corporation modestly announced, and I quote Z-Corporation's news release here, Z-Corporation today took another giant step in its mission to make high-definition color 3D printing available to the masses with the release of the Z-Printer 450. The new machine is the first color 3D printer to break $40,000 price point, the most highly automated and the most compatible with contemporary office environments. Modestly, did I say? Well, anyway, the Z450 transforms electronic 3D data into handheld physical models, and not just 3D, but with the appropriate colors, so the prototype looks and feels accurate. The device uses a powder and, at the end of the printing process, accumulates the leftover powder, which in some cases is about 90% of what it shot out, and recycles it. The company says that models printed with its device cost about $3 per cubic inch, The print quality is 300 by 450 dots per inch. The printer weighs more than 400 pounds. It's about 4 feet by 3 feet by 5 feet, and it can produce a model up to 8 inches by 10 inches by 8 inches. It'll take all day, in most cases, to do that. Now, producing something the full size, the 8 by 10 by 8, would be about 640 inches, 640 cubic inches, that is, So a little under $2,000 for that one model. You're not going to use that to create toys for your kids either. But again, if you are in the business of creating toys, components for any kind of machine, architectural models, this could save you a lot of time and could be well worth the price. If you'd like to see a video of the Z415 operation, hop over to TechBiter, www.techbiter.com, Look for the article on affordable 3D printing, and there's a link there to the Z Corporation website. The video is pretty interesting. Take a look at it. Within a single month, two TechBiter Worldwide programs went missing. Well, they didn't go missing. They just never showed up. You might wonder why that is, and if so, while you're on the TechBiter website, take a look at the section titled, Why Two Missing Programs in a Single Month. I'm not going to go into that on the podcast. If you're interested, take a look on the website. Uh, Probably not worth the time on the podcast. Just an interesting story of the way things are these days. And instead of nerdly news this week, how about some questions and answers? I received a couple of questions this week regarding spam. One asked, what do you consider to be the best at controlling repetitive spam? I tried blocking the old quarantine way, but unsuccessfully. The other was more concerned about a specific source. I found and read your write-up about Canadian Pharmacy, the note read. I receive 10 to 15 a day from this company. How do I stop their spam? Well, in October 2005, I deconstructed a spam from a bunch of crooks that passed themselves off as my Canadian Pharmacy. If you go to the TechBiter Worldwide website, you can follow a link back and read that article. The crooks who run the place, at least at that time, appeared to have a mailbox in Toronto, but the operation is certainly not a licensed Canadian pharmacy. The best current defense against spam, as far as I'm concerned, is a challenge response system. You won't receive any messages from people whose addresses you haven't individually whitelisted. Instead, when somebody sends you a message and you don't know that person, they'll receive a message from the challenge response system asking them to visit a website and type in a series of characters that can be easily read by a human but cannot be read by machines. If you feel that would be off-putting, and certainly if you're running a business, it's something you don't want to use, then most challenge response systems offer you the option to turn off the challenge and instead simply review a list of unauthenticated messages. I use spamarrest.com, It has an option that allows me to view unauthenticated messages, but to suppress those messages with invalid addresses. So if a spammer creates a hoax address, uses that as his return address, and the challenge bounces, I'll never see the message. I visit spam arrest several times a day to glance at the unverified message. This is a process that probably takes maybe 5 to 10 minutes a day, because it takes only a few seconds to spot any messages I want to receive, approve them, and then get on with life. Once I add an address to the whitelist, or once someone successfully responds to the challenge, then all future messages from that sender come through without being challenged. Another question this week. I am experiencing problems in copying large, more than 30 megabyte or so, TIFF files from my hard disk to a new 2 gigabyte thumb drive. I use Windows XP. I'm able to copy small files very quickly, but with the above said large files, Windows tries for a minute or two before it sends the message, Cannot copy file name, the path is too deep. There are a couple of large files I have managed to copy successfully, though. Initially, I said that sometimes Microsoft's diagnostic messages are a bit murky, but this one is crystal clear. The path is too deep. It's not the size of the file, it's the location. Try copying the file, I suggested, to the C root or to your desktop. It's probably in some location that's several levels deep, levels that the NTFS file system can handle, but most key drives either use FAT or FAT32 instead of NTFS, and they choke when the path is too long. It's also possible that you're trying to copy an entire directory tree that's more than eight levels deep. Again, Windows XP can handle extremely deep nesting, but FAT and FAT32 are limited. Well, I said that Microsoft's messages are sometimes murky, but this one was crystal clear. Uh, no, not exactly. As it turned out, shortening the path length by making a copy on the desktop and using that as the source did not solve the problem. But the person with the problem connected the thumb drive to a different USB socket, and that worked. (sighs) So much for my diagnostic capabilities, and so much for Microsoft's diagnostic messages. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of April fifteenth, two 2007. Get those tax checks in the mail. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. You can also send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.